House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast, dives into issues central to healthcare, explores ways in which healthcare professionals are advancing medicine through research and improvements, as well as the impact of quality assurance standards. Episodes highlight how healthcare professionals and organizations are connecting with communities, including underserved and marginalized populations. These firsthand stories will unpack the rapid changes in the field and answer the question why we do what we do. Hopefully, these stories will inspire you to think differently about the healthcare system and take action. Hi, my name is Claire Vincent, and I am the host of House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. Our fourth episode entitled Blazing Trails and Transplanting Kidneys is an inspiring conversation with Dr. Yolanda Becker, retired professor of surgery at the University of Chicago. We talk about her journey to choosing the surgery subspecialty of kidney and pancreas transplant, being a woman and person of color in the surgical field, balancing being a surgeon and mother and wife, the power of taking a pause in your career, and the intricate nuances and sometimes contentiousness of kidney allocation and distribution policies. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Becker. She has served in many roles throughout her career as a transplant surgeon. Among those are serving as president of the Organ Procurement and Transplant Network, a committee member of the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, and is currently the co-chair of a work group assessing patient factors contributing to kidney graft loss with the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Steering Committee. Dr. Becker earned her medical degree at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, completed her surgery training at Vanderbilt University, and finished her multi-organ transplant fellowship at the University of Wisconsin. I hope you enjoy listening to Blazing Trails and Transplanting Kidneys. Dr. Becker shares a wealth of knowledge and truly embodies curiosity and compassion. Welcome to today's episode, Dr. Becker. We are so happy to have you today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Oh, thank you. So as we always do on our episodes, we've got a lot of ground to cover with you today. So I'm going to go ahead and just dive right in if that's okay with you. That'd be great. Awesome. So as evidenced by your bio, you have had a very decorated and brilliant medical career. Congratulations on your success. How have you been enjoying retirement from the University of Chicago? Well, thank you for asking, because I think several people were surprised by my choice at this point in time. And I think it was really for a lot of different reasons. You know, some people take a brief pause in their careers when their children are young. Um, I took a pause after my kids are both in college, both sophomores, super proud of them at Occidental and at Pratt. So across the country from one another. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because I was taking a Peloton class, my favorite thing to do on Sundays. And Allie Love said this week, there is power in the pauses. So for the first time in my career, I mean, you know, I went from high school to college, right to medical school, did my residency, did research, then did my fellowship, then became a transplant surgeon, only moved once. I never took a pause. And I am truly blessed by many, many things. One of the most important things in my life is actually my rock, who is my husband. And we've been obviously um, a two-career couple. This year will be 29 years of marriage. And so he has 
often made compromises and we have made adjustments for having children, for desiring to have a family and be a part of that family. And also he has made several adjustments for my career. We don't call them sacrifices in our family. We call them agreements, adjustments. We continue to communicate. So in this point in time, I am super happy with where I was with my career, had achieved being professor of surgery. I'd been president of the United Network for Organ Sharing. I'd been on the boards of all of our major transplant societies. So I really felt very happy with where I was. And I knew that my husband had skill sets that could be really used in maybe perhaps a different venue. He was super happy in the position he was in, but had done a lot of traveling. And he actually likes to be at home. And so I said, why don't you look for something, anything you want, go for your heart's desire and I'll retire. You know, cause whenever you're doing a two career recruitment it is much more difficult. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize how quickly it would happen. <laughs> that was a little bit of a surprise. But he is super marketable for what he does. He is a nephrologist, but he has a master's of medical management, also is the physician executive. So he's in the physician leadership space and currently is the lead for a large physician group, the president of a large physician group. So the job that he found, one of the tenets of that job is don't be a jerk. I really liked that. So I said, you should go for that job. And if it gets offered to you, I will retire and take a pause. So I retired from the University of Chicago, which they were gracious enough to allow me to do. And it allows me many, many benefits, including retaining my title as professor of surgery. I just have to put a little retired after it. So it allowed me to continue to enjoy the things that I'd worked so hard to achieve. And I continued to take a place on the national stage and international stage by participating in advisory boards. I also have done some consulting as well that builds on my skill set. You know, I've stepped away from the operating room a little bit. However, my children are taking bets on how quickly that's going to go away. And, and I have been entertaining by first quarter of second of 2022 that I probably will go back to some part-time OR work. But the nice thing is that we are in the state of Texas now. We moved from Chicago and it takes a little while for in any state to get a medical license. So on purpose, I focused on actually selling a house, buying a house moving a family, getting two kids set in in-person college, which I was super excited about. And I ran the Chicago Marathon. So I kept myself busy. And so I have to say that um, retirement suits me just fine for the moment. I probably agree with my children, but there's so much in this world. There's so much to offer. And I loved being in the operating room. I loved taking care of my patients and I still keep in contact with them. Taking an educational role and an advisory role also has the opportunity to really multiply that influence. And that's really the space that I'm in now. That is fantastic. Good for you. And you really only officially have been retired since September. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's not very long. (laughs) Sounds like you're pretty busy. (laughs) Good for you. So Tell me, how did you decide to become a surgeon and specifically to focus on kidney and pancreas transplant? I 
have been fortunate also to have several really dear friends in my life. And four of them, we were housemates in medical school. I had thought long and hard about what I was going to do because there's almost this negative influence of others when, as a female, you state that you would like to go into surgery. There are several stereotypes, and we all know that stereotypes are not necessarily positive things. And so there were a lot of negative stereotypes, but my roommates, when I said, well, I actually, those were the days that you actually had to fill out an application. Mm. So I had my application filled out on paper with both medicine and surgery. I had two sets of applications I had filled out and I was really, I was really torn. And my roommates, my housemates said, look, let's put it to you bluntly you are much happier when you're on surgery and we are much happier with you when you're on surgery. We think that we're going to tear up these other applications. And it was funny because, you know, sometimes you have to have, I think in your life and in your career, those people I call barometer people that can tell you how the weather is, you know, you think you're okay. And you realize when your friends, your really true friends and your family will tell you, you know what, you really weren't as okay as you thought you were. So let's really think about this. And I really thought about it. And I thought, you know, I'm charged up by getting up and going to the operating room. I'm charged up about surgical diseases. And I'll I'll never forget, you know, as a medical student, when the resident turned to me and said, well, do you know how to put in this stitch? I'm like, yes, I do. And which I sort of did and I sort of didn't. I'd seen it in a book, but I so wanted to put in that stitch. So I put in the stitch. And the entire time the patient was in the hospital, that resident was like, that stitch is going to fall out. That stitch, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. But I actually enjoyed that pressure and that pride of knowing, oh my gosh, the stitch didn't come out and the patient went home and everything was good. And it just, you know, I just really loved that feeling. So despite my mother actually telling me that, oh my God, I'm never going to be a grandmother. And I'm like, Uh, excuse me, mom, you're a chemical engineer. You worked my entire life. So maybe we'll see. But I followed my passion. I followed my heart and kind of, if you will, got out of my head and went where I thought I would be happiest. And looking back, I would not do a thing differently. I am so happy with those choices. And, And again, feel so fortunate that that's the case. So I chose to become a general surgeon. I thought perhaps I would go into plastic surgery. Mm. Um, And then I thought about vascular surgery. I trained at Vanderbilt. I had the opportunity to switch to ear, nose, and throat at one point in time because they were switching some programs around and they were kind enough to say, would you like to consider this? You know, I came in to do general surgery. I want to do general surgery. I want to finish and be eligible to be board certified in general surgery. And that way I can take my future in many different directions. So my third year of residency, I was on the transplant service and my husband, future husband rotated onto the service as a nephrology fellow. So I asked all the nurses whether or not he was dating anyone. And they said they didn't think so. And uh, I thought he was pretty cute. 
And I really, truly had no groceries. People think I was kidding, but I really didn't. I had a bottle of ketchup that I was like turning into tomato soup because, you know, those were the days, I mean, you know, you walk uphill, you know, two miles both ways, but I mean, we really did do every other night call. So I really didn't have the need. Vanderbilt fed us quite well. People felt sorry for us. People brought us cookies. It was really, it was, you know, for every other night, it wasn't so bad. So I really had no groceries. And for the first time in my life, I actually asked a guy out because it was either go grocery shopping or ask him to go to dinner. And to this day, my husband laughs because I really don't like grocery shopping. He loves to grocery shop and he is the cook, thank God, because he's like, yeah, I learned to cook because otherwise I would starve. I'm like, yeah, you'd starve in our house too because I eat peanut butter and jelly. I'm happy with that. (laughs) So I was on the transplant service and we started dating. I was on call every other night. We went out on a Monday and by Friday, it was magic. I, I knew that was it. After we went on our first date, never went out with another person. And then I was supposed to go do a breast cancer research fellowship at the NIH. Mm. Had it all set up. Everything was good to go. My then boyfriend had become fiance within six or eight weeks, depending upon which one of you she talked to, said, of course, I will support you, you know, go to Bethesda. And I'm thinking, I have not known this guy for very long and we're getting married. I I think this isn't a great idea. The transplant surgeons were like over the moon. They thought this was the funniest and cutest thing that they had seen. Felt like, well, it happened on our service. So would you like to come into our lab? And I was like, well, okay. You know, seems pretty cool. And the other thing that's an offshoot of that is actually I'm left-handed. And I was once told that there are disadvantages in surgery. One of them is being a woman and the other is being left-handed. Now, that is not a very nice thing for somebody to say, but as a medical student, I had actually gone into the plastic surgery lab to teach myself to be right-handed. So when I had the opportunity to go into the transplant labs, there were two projects. One was doing some rat heart transplants and the other was doing pig transplants. I think you may have heard recently there was a lot of news about pig xenotransplants, you know, kidneys into humans, but this was some of that beginning research. And I had the opportunity with Dr. C. Wright Pinson, who's still at Vanderbilt, to do research and hone my skills at being right-handed. So I thought this was great. These guys were terrific. They were really dedicated people. And I thought, okay, I don't want to live apart from my new husband. We got married 11 months after our first date. Wow. Yeah. So then after I came out of the lab, my then husband, I said, I'm going to do general surgery. You are going to be the academician. I am going to do private practice general surgery. And he said, no, you're not. You are never going to be happy if you don't do transplant. It's your love. It's your passion. You cover everybody's vacation. You love the research. You love the science. And in point of fact, transplant surgery is one of those fields where we practice with all due respect to my nephrology colleagues and cardiology colleagues. But as surgeons, it is a little bit more medicine than most surgeons will practice. Mm -hmm. Because the surgery, as I tell many patients, is really the easiest part of the whole thing with due respect to my colleagues as well. But really what we do is we sew blood vessels together. Then we are asking the body to accept something foreign. What happens beyond surgery, both psychologically, 
and physiologically is a tremendous change for patients. Mm. What we're asking them to do is really a huge challenge. And as surgeons, we keep them. I mean, I have patients that are still emailing me that have been my patients for 20 years, which is really super exciting because it means 20 years later, there are still transplant patients. And, you know, I've lost, obviously lost some along the way, and that's hard, but it's also the beauty of being a physician is that real human touch and that relationship. And I love the relationship that I've been able to develop with my patients and with my colleagues, because, you know, once a transplant patient, always a transplant patient. So that's really how I got into kidney and pancreas. I did train at Wisconsin where we did liver transplants. Mm -hmm. When I was first in practice, I did do liver transplants along with kidney and pancreas transplants at University of Wisconsin. And I know exactly when I stopped doing liver transplants because my son was exactly two years old. At that point in time, I made a choice that wasn't really popular, but I made a choice to say, I'm not going to do livers because I actually, I really enjoy diabetic kidney disease. I really enjoy taking care of diabetics. They're my thing. And the liver transplants can be certainly very complex. There are a lot of emergencies and complications. Quite frankly, the surgery is much longer. And I had a two-career family. My husband at the time was the division chief of nephrology. And I was trying also as well to go from assistant to associate to full professor and be a part of my children's lives. And I have a son and a daughter who's adopted from China. So they're the same age. We had to work awfully hard to have our son. Um, I'm not afraid to say that we did have several rounds of IVF to have our son. And obviously adopting a child internationally is not an easy thing to do. And so I very much wanted to have the ands in my life, not buts, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I wanted and, and, and. So I had to figure out how to do that. And for me, the calculus did not include doing liver transplants. And I've never felt badly about that. I know some of my mentors were like, oh, Yolanda. I said, I know at the end of the day, I am wife and mom. I wear hats, you know, and I did tell a colleague once under circumstances for which we were disagreeing. I said, you know, from the minute I had these children to the day I die, I'm their mother. And 10 years from now, my career may look very different than what it looks today. So you will excuse me, and I'm leaving rounds. That was a tough day. Um, and then I got in my minivan, because by that time we'd owned a minivan, which my brother is horrified by, but we owned a minivan. I got in my minivan. I actually was so worried that I had said this to a senior colleague that I actually couldn't drive home. I was crying so hard. I said, but he crossed my line in the sand. You know, I said something about wanting to get home to see my children and feed my son because I was the feeding unit at that point in time. And the response was, oh, huh, are you still a real transplant surgeon? And I just, that was it. And, you know, surgery is very hierarchical. You usually don't burst out. I was like, you have crossed my line in the sand. And I share that story with trainees as well. 
because I fought to stay where I am and achieve the rank I have and actually made the choice to step away for a moment to show people I can. I can do this. I can't isn't in my vocabulary. You have to figure out. It's like Randy Pouster said in his last lecture, people will put up brick walls. They are put there to figure out how much you want something. And if you want it, you will go over, around, under, you will figure something out. And while that was frightening that I actually burst out and said this, that senior colleague subsequently became my biggest advocate. And when I was in the election to become the president of UNOS, the United Network for Organ Sharing, he knew how badly I wanted that. And he actually campaigned on my behalf. Mm. So I have to say that sometimes it has been frightening to put my foot down. When I have, it actually has turned out for the better. Great. That is really great. Have there ever been times you have put your foot down and it may not have turned out as you had hoped? Sure. Without a doubt. I think there are certainly times in transplant. One of the things that's very carefully monitored is how many transplants you do. And sometimes I would feel that we were in pursuit of the numbers rather than acting in the best interest of the patient. Mm -hmm. And when I put my foot down about things like that, it does get really awkward at times with administrators, senior members of an institute or things like that, because I understand we we do have to do some numbers. And it is hard because I went from Wisconsin, which had one organ procurement organization supplying the hospital, meaning that it was just kind of a, a, a very mom and pop sort of thing, very professional. So, I, you know, I don't want to imply that it was anything, but, but it's a very unique situation. Most organ procurement organizations in the country have to serve several hospitals. So there's competition, if you will. So one kidney, because that's what I'm most familiar with, might be allocated or distributed amongst several people, but there's only one organ and it can only go into one patient. So if I think that my patient is not suitable for that organ or that organ is not suitable for the patient in a place where there's only one hospital, I can rightfully move on to the next patient on the list. Mm -hmm. If you are in a competitive market, that next patient could be another center's patient. Mm -hmm. You can't control what the other center does. There were times when I was definitely in conflict when I felt that I was acting in the best interest of the patient, not necessarily a hospital. And that's a delicate thing to say, because I certainly would never imply that physicians don't want to act in the best interest of the patient and the hospital together. Sometimes those things are difficult to balance out. And I think that's where I really struggled at times. You know, but just because transplant is such an unusual field where there's so much more need than there is supply. So definitely supply and demand across all organs is imbalanced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're going to come back to talking a little bit more about organ allocation here in a couple of minutes, but wanting to maybe dive in a little bit more on this notion you know, women being a stark minority in surgery itself. When I was thinking about speaking with you today, I did a little bit of research and came across some statistics on the Association of American Medical Colleges website. 
And they pointed to the fact that in 2018, just under a quarter of all surgeons are women with the exception of, of course, the area of OBGYN where women make up 57%. Wondering from your perspective, and undoubtedly it was much less, of course, when, when you started your career. So I'm wondering about a couple of things. So first off, the information did not cite any other demographic. So it didn't talk about race or ethnicity either. So, you know, being a woman of color, very curious to hear, you know, the barriers that you faced probably starting from, you know, the time you graduated from medical school kind of through your career and what changes you saw over the course of your career as well. Yeah, I think that it is encouraging to hear from the AAMC because women make up more than 50% of the population that finally women are making up just ever so slightly greater than 50% of the medical school applicants and enrollees. So I think for the first time in 2017, there were more women applicants than men. Mm -hmm. So I think that is encouraging. So I think that there certainly, as we all talk about, what are the pipeline issues going on? Why do people choose certain areas? If you actually look across all specialties, there are many specialties that are not the surgical specialties where women make up just barely double digits and they yet they serve overwhelmingly in pediatrics, OBGYN, which is certainly very interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that part of this is looking for role models. Is there somebody out there I can talk to? Is there somebody I can ask for advice? Honestly, is there somebody who looks like me, whether it's in physical looks or in social looks like Is there somebody who's a mom? Is there somebody who has a partner? Is there somebody who has a spouse? Is there somebody, you know, who stayed single? Is it, you know, all those kinds of things. And I think that the fewer women that are at the professor level, the fewer women that can mentor other young women. And so I think kind of like begets like, and I'm very encouraged by the OBGYN specialty, particularly GYN oncology, which is a tremendously competitive and difficult field. There are many women in that field, all different shapes and sizes, if you will. And I think it's easier to find a mentor. So I think that's why I continue to want to be in a mentorship space, even though I've taken you know, a brief pause from the University of Chicago, I think it's important. And I always made a point of trying to tell stories, maybe oversharing in terms of having kids and having a husband, because that wasn't the stereotype when I was going through. Certainly where we are dealing with diversity and equity issues, that becomes even stickier, both among men and women, but certainly among women in surgery. It's difficult also for patients. We know in transplant that certain of our patients don't have access to the transplant list as much as they should. So I'm super excited that somebody like Danae Simpson, who is a woman of color and at Northwestern University and is a transplant surgeon, has a clinic specifically designed for her African-American patients. And she has given many interviews where she says patients will look at her in her white coat and begin to cry saying, I've never had, I've never seen a doctor that looks like me. 
you know? So I think that that's important as more and more people make it to the professor level. And of course, if you're talking about department chairs and things like that, you're even talking even smaller numbers. We have to persist. We have to stick with it. One of my favorite sayings is you can't cure stupid. And that's sometimes maybe not politically correct in this world. And I don't mean to imply that anybody in particular is dull-witted. However, what I mean by that is that sometimes people say and do things that are inadvertently, you know, some kind of aggression or microaggression. They need to be educated. Perhaps they don't know. So in a polite and professional way, you know, I've been saying, you can't possibly be my doctor. You're too little. And I say, I'm small, but mighty. And we laugh and it's okay. Right. I could have just turned around and said, well, I can't believe you're going to do that, but I'm not going to do that. I don't assume that the person across from me is trying to be aggressive or trying to be something that's an ist, that's not a good ist. And so I try to educate. I always try to come from the point of education. Of course, I've dealt with barriers. I've had people ask me if I speak English. I've had people say, you know, things, but I also don't know what's happened in their lives. Mm. Something may trigger it. And I'm not also afraid to say, if you are truly uncomfortable with me, part of my being a good physician, surgeon, and person is to say, if we cannot establish a therapeutic relationship, not friendship, but a therapeutic relationship, it is my responsibility to find you a doctor that you can deal with. Therefore, I'm going to give you some options. Those options sometimes are within my institution, sometimes they're not. That's not what I personally am about. My goal is to take the best care of a patient that I possibly can, and that may or may not include me. So, you know, I tend to look at things that are in my way as something that just needs to be, I need to just move beyond it. I can't borrow that trouble and make it my trouble. I view things not so much as barriers, but as opportunities to teach and opportunities to educate. And if somebody is truly not able to be educated, you know, I can control me. I can't control them. Mm -hmm. So I do my best. And one of my mentors used to say, with all due respect to any religion, that he would say, I've done my best and God will do the rest. Yeah. And so you can fill in whatever deity that is meaningful for you. But I think that that gives the thought that at a certain point, we all do have to let go of how we're trying to control somebody else. We can be kind, we can be considerate, and we can try to educate that's on me. And I take that responsibility. Mm -hmm. So when I encounter people saying things like you can't possibly be a real transplant surgeon, you know, sometimes I bow up and other times I just try to say, gosh, that's interesting. Why do you think that? I believe in the Simon Sinek five whys to always ask why, why, why five times to get to the bottom of something. Don't make assumptions about people and their reactions because there may be more to it. And so I always ask, why would somebody react this way? Mm -hmm. I come from a place where even if I disagree with somebody vehemently, I don't think that they're a bad person or anything like that. I just think that we've had different upbringings. So I need to understand why they think that way or why they're approaching a problem that way so that I can better understand it. And sometimes I realize I can't, I have a hard time getting there no matter how I educate. And then I try to find them somebody else. Mm -hmm. 
it's very interesting to hear about how much energy you have put into your individual attempts at, you know, getting through the challenges that you've been faced. And I have no doubt that those who have come behind you have very much benefited from your individual efforts. I can't help but think that you must have some thoughts about what does the profession itself need to do in order to help address, you know, some of these challenges that women have faced in becoming surgeons. I will say that one of my proudest moments was when a female junior faculty, because I was actually the first person at the University of Chicago who was an attending in transplant who had a baby because I was the first female faculty member. After I had Ian and Anna, our second female faculty came along, Dr. Janet Bellingham, and she had children in a residency, but she also had a child when she was a junior faculty. And one of my proudest moments was she was like, Yolanda, you made it so much easier for me. And I nearly cried because boy, did I fight. You know, I made sure she was protected. I made sure her salary didn't change. I made sure that she had a reasonable, fair call schedule. We're not asking for any favors as women in surgery. We don't need favors. We need fair. We need transparent. We need communication. Men and women need that. And I think that's what I find encouraging about people in medical school and in residency now. Men and women are asking and demanding more communication, more transparency, more education around diversity, equity, and inclusion. They are having conversations about, I don't call it work-life balance, I call it work-life integration. There are actually grand rounds that are required around self-care, sleep health. So I'm very encouraged that the numbers in terms of women choosing surgery or people overall choosing surgery, because surgery has dug itself a hole a little bit, being proud that we stay up late and we pull all-nighters and we do this and we do that. It's like, well, okay, well then we aren't going to have anybody going into our specialty and we're going to be really old. And so I think that the people that are coming through the educational ranks now, they're willing to be brave and have these conversations that quite frankly, we were afraid to have them. You know, I remember one of my mentors, it was not allowed to have a day off, but he was a very religious man and said, I go to church on Sundays. I will take a couple of you know, hours off. Well, people thought he was going to get fired. And he said, I didn't get fired. I honored my faith. And so those kinds of stories are going away. And we are looking at things like being transparent about parental leave, not maternity leave or paternity leave, but parental leave. We had these children. If you've chosen to have children within a two-person dyad, then we need time. If you've chosen to be a single parent, you need time. You know, so however created, and we can talk about families more openly, we can talk about, I mean, it used to never be that people would talk about, quote, part-time or job sharing amongst surgery. And I think I'm starting to hear those kinds of things where people do at one point, I did kind of part-time transplant surgery and part-time education. Well, people didn't do that. I mean, people in transplant got their promotions based on basic science research. We were talking earlier, I had originally started my research doing xenotransplant research. I realized that because of the requirements to take care of the animals, it's really extensive and the animals are very precious. 
So I realized that for me to be in a basic science lab, that was going to be really hard. So I went the education route. Well, that was very unusual at that point in time. People didn't do that. They didn't get promoted in surgery by doing education research. That was weird. And certainly in transplant, it was super weird. I asked my superiors to just trust me and please just go with me. This is what I need to do to get to and and to get to yes. So let me try. If I don't succeed, I don't succeed. But if I do, won't this be magical? Mm-hmm. So I actually was promoted all the way to professor of surgery based on education research, not basic science, which is unusual for transplant. I'm happy to say that there have been several behind me that have been like, oh my gosh, we can do this. Yeah. And I know in particular, several of my fellows who have now come as associate professors and now professors, I'm like, wow, um, that have come through the education route. And they did that, men and women, so that they could honor their other obligations of being human beings. I think the more we allow people to see the human side of surgery, the more we will attract people into that. Before it was that, you know, you had to be this sort of, you know, very hard on the exterior. You couldn't show the vulnerabilities. I think that's a mistake. I think that you certainly don't want to be weak by any stretch. I don't think anybody would think a surgeon was weak. I think it is okay to be vulnerable. It is okay to say, yeah, you know, I remember every single patient death, I still cry. I still call families. That is okay. Why should I hide that? It doesn't make me better, worse, or otherwise. It's how I deal with it. Luckily, I've not had a lot of deaths of patients in my career, but when they die earlier than I thought and had surgical complications, I feel that. You know, I very much feel that. And I think it's okay for people to see. There are certain times when we do certain kinds of procurements that are very hard for students to process and I have a debrief with them. So, you know, to allow people to see the human side of surgery, I think will encourage both men and women. And de facto, because women comprise more than 50% of classes now, that we will have a greater pipeline and we'll have more women coming into the surgical fields. I am concerned about some of our diversity in medical school altogether, and then it just gets smaller and smaller as time goes on. So I think that we in the medical field can do a lot more in terms of making a medical degree affordable or attainable for people. I mean, if you think about the student debt, and this isn't really what we're talking about, but if you think about student debt, people are coming from being maybe the first in their family to go to college or certainly medical school. This is a tremendous amount of debt. So how can we work to remove those barriers? I think that will help us to make the people who take care of us look a lot more like the population as a whole. Indeed. And in fact, you absolutely answered the question by talking about those variety of aspects that the profession or maybe even society as a whole need to begin to look at in order to break down the barriers for creating those opportunities for more women and more people of color. So I really appreciate it. At the same time, I am happy that you are encouraged and that you're actually seeing, you know, what had been your experience and the evolution over time. And again, thank you for your contributions to those changes. It's really fun. I really enjoy seeing things like when the residents actually, it's okay to have an outdoor club and we go outside. Oh my gosh. You know, nobody, when I was going through residency, nobody cared about whether or not we worked out. And yet we had a lot of fun. I think people were really seeking each other out after the pandemic. So we were able to safely 
do a boxing class together. It was great. You know, I sponsored it and, you know, it was great because it was physically distanced. It was at a studio that obviously was very careful about its COVID precautions. And we just got to punch punching bags. It was great. And, you know, the residents were there. And these are the kinds of things that are acceptable now that weren't before. So I think when people see other people having fun, that's when you say, oh, I can do this. You have to see yourself in the position. Somehow it's got to be in your head that I can do this. I can envision myself there. I'd like to think that in sticking with surgery and being enthusiastic and being hopeful that people can see themselves in my shoes. That's right. Affinity Strategies is a full-service nonprofit healthcare associate management and stakeholder engagement firm. They use digital-first solutions to promote transparent, efficient business practices. They partner with each client organization to maximize both staff and client expertise, experience, and relationships to meet goals. To learn more about Affinity Strategies services, the team, and the mission-driven work they have done and continue to do, visit their website at www.affinity-strategies.com. All right, Dr. Becker, let's talk a little bit more about your practice in kidney transplant. Does that sound okay? That sounds great. And I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I would love to maybe get into more details regarding organ allocation policies. First off, what are they? And do different organs have different allocation policies? Allocation and distribution are probably some of the most contentious policies that we deal with in the transplant world. The main reason is because the demand is far greater than the supply. And certainly where you deal with heart, lung, and liver, if patients don't receive a transplant, they die. If patients don't receive a kidney transplant, Number one, there are some patients who have lost dialysis access and can no longer dialyze, so they will die. Or they will certainly die sooner on dialysis than they will if they get a transplant. There is a survival benefit, a clear survival benefit to transplantation. And the quality of life for a dialysis patient who may sit on a machine, it is life-saving. Absolutely, dialysis is life-saving. However, They are sedentary for, you know, 12 hours. They sit in a chair, they have hemodialysis, or they do peritoneal dialysis, which is through a catheter in the abdomen and, you know, may go all night. However, these patients are truly tethered. I mean, really tethered to the medical system. So to allow them that freedom is an amazing thing to be able to do. In terms of allocation or how we hand out organs, there are always lots of stories about, well, somebody jumped the list. I can assure you, having been the president of UNOS, that there are extensive rules about how organs are distributed across the United States, and there is no jumping of the list. You can have a living donor of a piece of a liver or one of the kidneys. And in that case, of course, people don't necessarily have to wait on the deceased donor waiting list, but that's not jumping the line. That is actually, you know, talking to people, doing what we call the big ask, 
And then the other person does the big give, incredibly dedicated donors and also the deceased donors. I would be remiss if I did not take this opportunity to thank every donor family that's out there. At a time of great grief, they give the gift of life. And for every living donor, they've given the gift of life. This is an amazing human feat. So that being said, though, the organs each have their own allocation policies based upon how long an organ can go. So for instance, heart and lung, they don't keep as long as a liver or a kidney. So some of the allocation is based upon that. Allocation also takes into account who is sickest and you have to have somebody who will survive the surgery and the recovery and the anti-rejection medications thereafter. So they can't be too sick there are, sadly, people are removed from the list because they become too sick for transplant while they're waiting or they die on the list. So it's trying to hit that sweet spot of getting to the list, then staying on the list, and then receiving an organ. Again, there's a great imbalance of supply and demand. So there are allocation policies for each organ. Okay. And this was determined actually by something called the final rule. And recently there have been significant changes in allocation or how organs are distributed. This has led to congressional hearings. It's also led to lawsuits. Sadly, if one patient gets an organ, that's another patient who doesn't get an organ. So we as transplant professionals, we advocate for our patients which sometimes is difficult. In the final rule, there are 14 areas. However, there is one area that talks about geographic disparity, that where you live, if you will, an accident, quote unquote, of geography should not determine how long you do or do not wait on a transplant waiting list. However, there were geographic disparities in the United States for a lot of reasons. Some are historical, some are just because of where people live, there are a lot of reasons for it. So in the last five years, the transplant world has really had to adjust and every organ has had a change in allocation policy to decrease the geographic disparities. Wow. This has caused a lot of difficult conversations amongst transplant professionals. It has been very contentious in 2017 when I was the president of UNOS. We had liver allocation. The public comment was over 320 pages long. Yes. Yeah, so it's because we understand that we don't have enough. And so Congress gets involved and yet transplant is self-governing. So allocation is very difficult. I think one of the things that we can do as professionals is to make sure that organs are being distributed efficiently, whether they're heart, lung, any solid organ is being distributed efficiently so that we have less discards. In the media right now, there's a lot about organs being discarded, which I don't like that terminology because I certainly would never want a donor family to think of their loved one's gift of life as being discarded, but organs are not used for a variety of reasons. How can we make sure that as many organs can be used reasonably? And we're, there are some efficiencies in the system that need to be improved so that we can do that. There are opportunities to increase our 
supply by diminishing our non-use of organs. That's an area in which we work. We're also working to try to get organs efficiently where they need to go. Kidneys do fly on commercial flights. Just this past weekend, with our airlines being beset by weather-related issues and staffing issues, this becomes quite frightening for us in the transplant world. It's like, oh my gosh, we have ways of moving things around, but we too have to move things around sometimes by charter flights and charter pilots. The workforce issues impact transplant greatly as we're trying to move organs to the proper places in the United States. And the organs don't keep forever. So, you know, we do have to move them quickly. So for us, a canceled flight is more than just a canceled flight. Right. It's saving an organ, therefore probably saving somebody's life, right? And people have done amazing things. Pilots, airline attendants, you know, air traffic control. I mean, there was one time when I remember we keep GPSs in kidneys and the GPS stopped moving. And I was like, and you get a special phone number. I'm like, why did my GPS stop moving? I'm like, it's okay, Dr. Becker, we're just waiting for a gate. I'm like, well, stop waiting. So, so planes that have organs on them do have a medical priority. So all of a sudden, within a couple of minutes, I see my GPS moving again. And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> so, you know, despite urban myth, we have not lost anything. <laughs> Don't get tucked out. I mean, I think, honestly, I, I do think we are out there doing good. And somehow we're just being watched in a good way. And so things do get where they're going. We have not had to, to my knowledge, have any organs not get transplanted simply because there was a logistics problem. But, you know, like everything else these days, it is a supply chain. I mean, the discussions can get quite contentious when it comes to organ allocation amongst transplanters because we're trying to act in the best interest of our patients. Sure, sure. And Dr. Becker, a few moments ago, you mentioned that when the final rule was being discussed, there was over 300 pages of comments. Can you tell us a little bit about like, what were the roots of those comments and what was so controversial? Right. So with liver allocation, there are parts of the country where patients get a score of basically how likely they are to not make it to transplant, the MELD score. The higher the score, the sicker the patient. So in certain parts of the country, the average MELD score was higher than in other parts of the country, suggesting that perhaps there was a geographic disparity. Some disagreed. Some said, well, there are lots of reasons for it. It wasn't just a simple geographic disparity. There were other reasons. Others would argue that it's simply because you guys have a smaller list and you have more people who donate. Therefore, your patients are more likely to get organs, and that's not fair. There were places that are densely populated, particularly on the East Coast, and because of the way the borders were drawn between organ procurement organizations, one person across the river would be waiting longer and more likely to die than somebody just across the river wow. uh, because they're split up into what were called donor service areas or DSAs, which were drawn for administrative purposes, not the purpose of organ allocation. So when those discussions started to take place, there were mathematical models that ultimately came up with a compromise of 250 nautical miles. And then, of course, you have the arguments of, well, but 250 nautical miles includes an ocean. Well, yes, so there were a lot of arguments back and forth. There were, you know, a lot of concerns that, well, this is just if you will, an organ grab. And so the 300 that I was referring to really was about liver. And again, it's because, you know, if you don't get a liver transplant and you get sicker, the reality is that your loved one or your patient is going to die. So there were 
a lot of people on either side saying, you know, we should continue with the way we've done it with these DSAs. And there were others that said DSAs were not meant for organ allocation policies. We need to either be in large districts across the United States or ultimately what we compromised on was a 250 nautical mile circle with proximity points. So if you were closer to a donor hospital, you did get some points for being closer to the hospital. It did spread things out a little bit more. The same thing happened with kidney and certainly lung and heart are also in concentric circles. Ultimately, we are allowed to draw lines. You have to draw lines to some degree because at a certain point, the organ has to travel too far. There's mm-hmm. not enough time. And you can't be shipping things back and forth. And it certainly doesn't make sense to ship an organ, you know, one direction while they're literally crossing in the air. So there are lots of complexities in mathematical models. That being said, people were really passionate about this and what is best for the organ, what is best for the patient, how can we honor this We can draw lines. Those lines can't be, in legal terms, arbitrary and capricious. Some would argue that the DSAs are not arbitrary and capricious because they're built along relationships that an organ procurement organization has with its hospitals. Mm. Others say it is because there are literally polka dots in large states like Texas, where I live now. There were kind of these funny polka dots because of pre-existing very good relationships. This was not built out of malice. It was an organic growth of a field that actually took off after immunosuppression really became standard with the discovery of cyclosporin and the ongoing discovery of better anti-rejection medications, transplant became a standard of care, which I think years ago when cyclosporin was first discovered, the only kind of realistic transplant you can do is amongst identical twins. Well, that you know, clearly limits things. We're not limited anymore. So we have had vast success with patients and with living donors. I've had living donors who've gone on to have children. I had a living donor kidney patient who had identical twins. So you know, there's a lot that's happened. It used to be that we wouldn't even do living donors unless people were related, like brother and sister or father. Or th- and now it's like, hey, if you want to give a kidney, even a liver, a piece of your liver, we will assess you and make sure that you are safe and you know there's not payment in the United States that's illegal and so much can be done. So what we need to do now is really work on our ability to take care of patients, to intervene on disease as quickly as possible so maybe they don't develop end-stage kidney disease. And third, to increase our supply in as much as we use organs as best we can And that people have considered, could they be a living organ donor? Or if they haven't, then please have a discussion with your family about becoming an organ donor and designating that on your driver's license. That's right. Very helpful information, Dr. Becker. I have one last substantive question before we move on to our lightning round. During our first episode of our House Call podcast, we interviewed Liz Schumacher. As you know, she's the CEO of Affinity Strategies, and we talked about her passion and devotion to patient advocacy. I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts on the same from the perspective of a healthcare provider. Yeah, I think that patient advocacy is absolutely critical, and that's part of the reason why this pause 
in my career and stepping away from the clinical side allows me to have a more national and international voice about patient advocacy and care. Advocacy really comes in many shapes and sizes. I want to empower the patient to individually advocate for themselves by making good choices about diet, nutrition, exercise. I want to advocate on a community level to make sure that there are not food deserts, that people have affordable food choices that are nutritious. You know, it is much easier to obtain food that is less nutritious and quite frankly, tastes pretty good and is quick. People are working two jobs, three jobs. They don't have time to cook. How can we make things like the fresh refrigerators that I see popping up everywhere, some of the community activity that we had around the pandemic? If anything good comes from the pandemic, it is the community refrigerators, the great desire for people to reach out and get rid of the care and food deserts on a community level, on a national level. We need policies that make sure that patients have access to health care in a way that is transparent and equal. We have to take healthcare to the patient, not just always expect them to come to us. I think that again, COVID has brought so much tragedy and yet so much innovation. We weren't doing Zoom meetings before. Now I regularly have video conferences with my colleagues. We do video visits with patients. That is an amazing thing to do a video visit with the patient, not have the background blurred. You can see where are they living? Do you see a coffee maker? Do you see electrical appliances that are actually running? Can they not do a video visit because they don't have a computer? So these are all things that are important to advocate for patients. And I think that as physicians, we can teach patients to advocate for themselves, but it is absolutely critical for us to be involved in a national level with organizations like AMA, American Association for Medical Colleges, so that things are built into the curriculum about patient advocacy, about teaching that a patient is a whole person, teaching them about their environment and the social determinants of health. I am so excited to see in curriculums across the United States that medical schools are beginning to teach about social determinants of health because a person who lives with anxiety about food and food insecurity is not going to be able to be healthy and certainly not going to be able to partner to get a transplant. My goodness, you know, you're talking boxes of meds that are incredibly expensive. They have to navigate the healthcare system. We need healthcare navigators. We need social workers. You know, people think that they go to the doctor, but really getting to that point can take a village. How do you navigate the insurance policies? How do you navigate if you don't have insurance? How do you get a ride to come to the doctor? You know, I love it when I was in the south side of Chicago and I would see the blood pressure truck going around. I'm like, we need to get health care to people who can't get to it. And, you know, when I see vaccine trucks going out, when I see the way as a society have reached out to those that are hurting, that gives me hope. That's great. I love how passionate you are, and I know you are going to continue to make a difference. So thank you for all of your efforts behind patient advocacy. Well, thank you. All right. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? I think so. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, Dr. Becker, here we go. Describe yourself in three words. I think happy, energetic, and optimistic. Lovely. What is your favorite day of the week? Monday. I love Mondays. It's the beginning. You know, I, I just, I love to tackle my week. I just love Mondays. Plus in marathon trainings, Monday was a rest day. Right. <laughs> Easy day. <laughs> Last song you downloaded. I was working on my marathon playlist. And so I downloaded a lot of old stuff, but one of my favorites was 96,000 from In the Heights because it asks the question, you know, somebody gets a winning ticket and it's $96,000 and it asks this group of people, what would you do with that? And, you know, I'm running along. I'm like chugging. Believe me, I'm not fast. You know, chugging along. It's like, yeah, what would I do with $96,000? So I love that. So I downloaded it and put it on repeat and it just kept me taking steps. That's great. Had you thinking about what you were going to do instead of focusing on one foot in front of the other. Uh (laughs) Understood. Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or speak to animals? Animals. I'm a huge animal fan. We have the Becker Zoo. We have two dogs, two geckos that are my sons, two fish that are my daughters, and a guinea pig. Um, (laughs) They all moved from Illinois to Texas with us, and all my animals are rescues. We are huge. Well, I am a huge animal person, and my husband says, you can't go to the Humane Society by yourself. My next thing is rescue horses. So now that I'm in Texas, I figure I can do that. So I talk to my animals. I'm sure they can understand me. (laughs) Well, I'm sure they could, but if you all could talk together, I'm sure that would be a lot of (laughs) conversation. Favorite junk food? McDonald's French fries. Yes. Best thing about running a marathon is you can eat the carbs. Mm -hmm. That's right. You earned it. Ask permission or forgiveness? Forgiveness. Always forgiveness. I'm with you. All right. DJ knows this is my most favorite question. What's the most boring thing ever? I can't think of anything boring. (laughs) You know, I'm like, wait a minute. What's boring? I don't know. I was picking up pecans from the road and cracking them open to see if they were like molded or not inside. Most people would think that's pretty boring. I don't know. I haven't found anything boring. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I think you're very lucky if that's the case. Good for you. Very fortunate. I, you know, I think my mind is always going. If I'm doing something that might be boring, my brain is going. So I just forget that I'm being bored. Good. That's a great coping mechanism. (laughs) How many times did you sneeze in the last seven days? I luckily have not sneezed. Congratulations. My son and my husband always sneeze in twos. If they sneeze, they always sneeze twice. It's really funny. So I always say, bless you, bless you. (laughs) I suppose if it's three times, it's far more serious. It is. Then then you're getting COVID (laughs) tested. What's the fastest you've ever driven a car? 85. And you know, the speed limit in Texas is 75. I'm like, wow, people are fast here. Yeah, people drive fast in Texas. That's for sure. What is for dinner tonight? Or do I need to ask your husband this question? 
Well, actually, you do need to ask my husband because he's cooking it. So I know what it is because I'm eating it. We are going to have turkey tacos tonight. That sounds delicious. But he's the cook. Well, I'm sure they will be great. Okay, next one. Dawn or dusk? Dusk. I am a night owl. A for sure night owl. I used to tell people, you know, my bewitching hours between like 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. Other than that, I'm kind of usually kind of stirring and awake. And the most magical thing about retirement is that for the first time in 25 years, I actually sleep like through the night without my phone going off. As a transplant surgeon, you know, you're constantly awake and I was a director of the program. And so even if I wasn't on call, somebody would call and ask, and I always have an open door. So it's taken me a whole month to like, not wake up and like, look at my phone and make sure I haven't missed anything. It's really wild. It is really wild. So yeah. I am sure your brain has enjoyed that adjustment off a little bit. It has. It's a little shocked, I think. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not drinking coffee because God knows I'd be bouncing off the walls. (laughs) Because now I'm actually all rested. Oh my gosh. Good for you. Is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? No. You know, because they can be vegan. And who doesn't like chop off the little trunk on the elephant? Yeah. I mean, you have to be able to do that. So no, I think it's totally okay to have vegan animal crackers. Good. Oh gosh. I can't tell you whenever we ask this question, we get the funniest initial reactions from our guests. So thank you for playing along. Thank you. <laughs> who do you admire? I admire a lot of people. I think first and foremost, my mom and dad who really came to the United States. They escaped from China to Taiwan. They came to the United States with really a suitcase and luckily an opportunity for education. My dad got his PhD at Emory. My mother got a master's degree in engineering at Mount Holyoke. And they built something from nothing, truly. They gave my brother and I an incredible base. And I thank them for everything. I obviously am who I am in many ways because of who they are. Admire my husband, for standing by me, for being that rock for me, for telling me you're out of balance, you need to rein it in. For my kids, I admire them for putting up with it. You know, there were times that they would honestly say, well, how come you're not a home mom? How come my mom works? And even in this day and age, when a lot of moms work outside the home and both inside the home, there were times that I was gone for things. And so... I admire them for the people they have become and are becoming, having dealt with two parents that are working. And certainly there are countless other national and international figures, but really I center my admiration around my family. Oh, that's lovely. What are you currently reading? Cloud Cuckoo Land. I love to read. And also I'm reading Claw and the Sun. So I love public libraries. I do have a nook, but I lost my nook. So the public library in Fort Worth, Texas is getting a lot of use right now. And it's only half a block from my house, which is a little dangerous because I'm always at the library. They're starting to get to know me, even though I've only been here a month, but I love to read. And I would encourage anybody who goes into the medical field that even if you're in medical school, and certainly when you come out, be an avid reader, be curious. I love short things. I love long things. I read everything my children ever brought home, you know, whether it was a children's picture book or things that they read in high school, which at times were a little bit disturbing, like 13 Reasons Why. That was a tough book, but I love to read. But those are the two that I'm reading currently. I've I've got them both. (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. And here is our last question for you in the lightning round. 
What is your dream job? Of course, other than the one you have currently done. I would be a teacher. I would want to teach third graders. I just think they're so fun. There's so much potential. The littler ones would be a little hard for me because, you know, but when they get to kind of third grade and they've really kind of done their reading and they're just, there's such opportunity. So I would be a teacher. Oh, and I am sure you would have been very good at it. Thanks. I'm not so sure, but <laughs> my kids say I'm terribly impatient, but I love that. That's fabulous. Well, before we let you go today, would love to give you an opportunity just to share some final thoughts on things we did talk about, maybe things we didn't get to, but would love for you to share some final words with our listeners today. What I'd like to share is I hope that everybody who listens has the good fortune to follow their passion and to work for it. It's not going to be easy. It's worthwhile fighting for the things that you believe in. And again, I can't say how blessed I feel to have been able to have a career that I've been so fulfilled, to have a family that I love dearly, and to be able to hopefully have an impact on other people's lives through the people that I teach, through doing podcasts such as this, And I really appreciate the time that your listeners are giving us. As our weekend broadcaster says, I appreciate the privilege of your time. Absolutely. And Dr. Becker, we appreciate your time, your determination, your passion, your sheer grit is nothing short of inspirational. And we know that you are going to take just a brief pause because we know you've got a whole lot more to do. So Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you guys very much. What a fascinating conversation with Dr. Becker. I always learn so much from these discussions and my time with Dr. Becker was no exception. Despite having faced her own adversities and challenges as a surgeon, Dr. Becker is encouraged about the fact that over 50% of medical school applicants and enrollees are now women. However, as she pointed out, there's a lot of room to do better. Ethnic and racial diversity in general amongst healthcare providers continues to lag. Dr. Becker maintains that the medical profession needs more ethnically and racially diverse role models within the medical academy. Healthcare providers in general must be more reflective of patient demographics. And our healthcare system needs to be brought to our most underserved populations. She also stated that the surgery profession must become more transparent with communications regarding aspects of the job like fair on-call schedules and options for part-time hours or job sharing, parental leave policies that need to be standard for all surgeons, and the human side of being a surgeon needs to be openly recognized. Her passion for kidney transplant is unmistakable, and her dedication to its art and science is evident in the work that she has engaged in all of her career and continues to do today. And lastly, Dr. Becker provided a bit of advice that particularly resonates with me. She said, it is worthwhile to fight for the things you believe in. I couldn't agree more. Today's episode was written, researched, and hosted by me, Claire Vincent, with technical production provided by DJ Stanyars and music from Caleb Justinger. You can find House Call on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to follow our series to stay up to date on new episodes. Share it with your friends, and if you enjoy what you are hearing, kindly give us a like. This helps us get the word out about our series. You can expect a new episode to drop sometime during the third week of each month. 
Thank you so much for listening to House Call and Affinity Strategies podcast. We appreciate you so, so much. I look forward to catching up with you again in just a few weeks. Thank you for listening. I'm Claire Vincent. Thank you.